0: Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society,
1: where we make history the Brooklyn way.
0: Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today.
1: And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society,
0: and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. On January 20th, we opened Waterfront, a major long-term exhibition at BHS Dumbo at our second gallery location in Brooklyn Bridge Park. The exhibition was four years in the making and covers centuries of history along Brooklyn's coastline. It tackles topics as diverse as commerce and labor, oysters and sewage, slavery and freedom, gender and work, and pressing issues like gentrification and sea level rise. In honor of Waterfront's opening, we're revisiting segments from past episodes that reveal how many of the stories in this exhibition came to life. You can visit Waterfront six days a week at Brooklyn Historical Society, Dumbo. You'll find hours, directions, and more at our website, brooklynhistory.org.
1: One of my favorite things to do in this space is to just find some of the graffiti on these posts um, and put my hand on one of the posts and close my eyes and imagine this space filled with bags of sugar and coffee and grain and hogsheads, which are barrels. And then, of course, hundreds of men and you know dozens of draft animals working to move these things in and out. Again, just the bread and butter of American commerce has its roots roots in the building that we're standing right now.
2: We often think about Dumbo and Vinegar Hill and, and the neighborhoods in and around the Brooklyn Waterfront as sort of these swanky, posh places to live. You know, today we go to Dumbo and we're surrounded by fancy restaurants, fancy apartments, all these things. And you forget that underneath all of that shiny new um, patina of development is, are these legacies of folks who lived in this neighborhood before it was anything like
3: that. There's so much that could be done. The heart is there, the dignity is there, the loyalty is there. Again, you have families who've been there for many generations, are still there. And um, they want the best, the best of what life has to offer. And they want so much for their children. But those who are invisible and disenfranchised and disconnected from especially resources, resources, job opportunities.
0: We're coming to you from 55 Water Street Empire Stores, where Brooklyn Historical Society has just opened a second location called BHS Dumbo. And I'm very excited to be here with my co-host, Julie Golia, who has been doing tons of research on this. In fact, I think ever since I've known you, I know. you've been researching I know. this building. I don't and remember so. what it was like <laughs> before. But it's so cool because um, it's this exciting time for our institution and, and certainly I think for people who are interested in these, the history of, of this uh, waterfront. For people who may not be familiar with this area, um, where, where exactly are we?
1: So we're here in a neighborhood called Dumbo, named not after the elephant, um, <laughs> but actually after the physical location, Dumbo stands for down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass. And here we are between two bridges, the Brooklyn Bridge and the Manhattan Bridge, looking at a really spectacular stretch of the waterfront through the arched windows of this warehouse.
0: And down under the bridge makes us sound like trolls, I know. but um, I know. <laughs> we're not. And <laughs> and if you're if you're not familiar with this part of Brooklyn, you should definitely come visit. And if you are familiar, you should come visit again because it is so beautiful.
1: Yeah. And it's a real contrast, I would say, to where our headquarters is. So um, Brooklyn Historical Society's headquarters is in Brooklyn Heights, which was really, um, as we've talked about in the past, really one of the first commuter suburbs in American history. It's a largely residential neighborhood, beautifully preserved brownstones. And down here feels really different, doesn't it?
0: Yes. Yes.
1: This is an industrial neighborhood. And so we're looking at warehouses like the one that we're standing in, factories were in this neighborhood, and then all the sort of subsidiary businesses like coal um, factories um, supporting the high industry that took place here in Dumbo. And of course, today, that industry has been transformed into sort of a post-industrial neighborhood landscape that we see now.
0: Yeah. And, you know, walking around, you you can kind of get the sense that there are these echoes of a past that yeah. uh, is no longer here, right? Um, Tell us, you know, what kind of stories does a building like this tell about itself?
1: Well, the beautiful thing about both of our buildings now, um, our headquarters and now our second location, is that They're primary sources that are reflective of the period in which they they were built, in which they are functioning. And so in a lot of ways, we can look around us right now and we can look at this warehouse um, as a piece of evidence to to analyze. And so the first thing I think for us to think about is the bigger structure, right? So we're looking at a building that is actually made up of seven sort of warehouses that are all attached to each other. We're in one of the four-story ones. The four-story section was built in 1860. And then there was sort of an addition put on a five-story addition in 1885, and it's marked by a couple things. First of all, these enormous arch windows that we see on the outside of the building that allowed both air to come through and for goods to be sort of hauled in through the front of it to be stored in the sort of the cavernous depths inside. Um, when we look outside here, we can also see the beautiful schist walls um, that mark the sort of the boundaries of each of these warehouses.
0: Now, for for people who aren't familiar, um, because I certainly am not, um, what is schist?
1: Sure. Schist is basically a kind of a rock. Um, It's a metamorphic rock. And it um, a lot of actually northern Manhattan and the Bronx is made out of schist. It's built on this sort of rocky schist land. Down here in Brooklyn, especially as you move further south, um, we're sort of on the edge of a glacier plain, and so we have more of a sandy and rocky um, sort of land down here. As you move north, um, you um, come onto a terrain that is actually really bumpy and rocky. And so, in the 19th century, when city planners basically planned to lay out the grid that it defines man. Manhattan and to even out its land, enormous amounts of schist were pulled out of Manhattan and in a lot of cases used in different kind of municipal municipal, um, construction projects around the city. Um, We don't know for sure where the schist of the walls of Empire Stores actually came from, but it's very likely that it was a local rock that was pulled from some other project that was taking place. Uh, It's kind of amazing to step back and think about the the physical transformation that marked the city of New York and the city of Brooklyn in the 19th century, movement of good, of good materials from one place and to, to fuel other construction. Yeah, it's almost kind
0: of like a um, recycling. Of, it's green. Of, yeah, it's your lead yeah, that's, that's pretty your, cool. It's your lead um, building of the 19th century. It country. is. But, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned Glacier, and, and I, of course, at least know a little bit about um, what that means in terms of where we're actually standing. And if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, a few hundred years ago, this would have been water.
1: Yeah. So we would have been standing basically <laughs> before 1796, where we're standing right now in BHS Dumbo, we would have been standing in open water. Wow. And this is not unusual to hear. So about 70,000 acres of greater New York City our man-made land, are wow. essentially landfill. And b- basically the land that we're standing on right now was laid out in a series of three landfill episodes. The first one happened around 1796, um, creating Water Street, um, we get why it was named All that right. now, right? It's a very literal was, was a name. Straight up water. The original water line, or what you see in maps sometimes called the ancient water line, actually was sort of a softer line um, that stood between present day Water Street and Front Street. And then the last landfill episode actually allowed for Plymouth Street in front of the building to get built um, to lay out the waterfront, largely as we know it today. So why did they do this? Because the commercial waterfront was growing. They didn't want rocky or sandy shores they didn't want the marshlands that would have defined the natural waterfront they needed to build piers docks and bulkheads so again this is just part of a larger just remarkable transformation of the natural environment of new york that took place in the late 18th and early 19th century and up into the 20th now
0: why would it be advantageous to build on such you know kind of somewhat unstable initially unstable territory. yeah well
1: actually what's interesting is how stable it is so let's let me point out something else that's actually built on landfill the entire world trade center area is wow. landfill right wow yeah, so yeah, yeah, um i true. mean it's really quite remarkable to think about how much of new york is built on what is essentially fake land but there are a couple things to consider when we're thinking about the history of landfilling the waterfront the first is, you know, one of the most lucrative commodities in New York's history is of course real estate, right? Um this is true in the past, this is very true today. And there's a you know in the in the late 19th and early 20th century, one way of thinking about this was actually about building up, right? The establishment of steel frame buildings, the ability the ability to build skyscrapers to basically make money out of the sky. But of course, another way of thinking about this is to build out right to build out land along the waterfront basically creating a commodity a real estate commodity um, by you know basically putting garbage into the ground and filling it up to build on top of it and of course the waterfront is an important place to do this because that land is incredibly important to a port city where most of its commerce takes place on the waterfront
0: so let's let's look around in this space that we are in and um you know one of the first things that when you come in you see some of the um I would say old structure mm-hmm. preserved I mean it's it's really cool because you know a lot of times when we do place-based history it's kind of in the abstract it's what documents yep. say about this place it's what people say about this place and and now we actually get to 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 listen or or read what the place says about itself so one of the things that um, that is here when you walk in is this 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 what looks like a tool a, a huge tool a, big tool a big tool with like gears and what could have been wheels you and pulleys yeah what yep. what is this 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 thing
1: so this enormous 11 foot thing that we're looking at in our (laughs) space is basically a hoisting winch um you're absolutely right you can see that there's a large wheel and then a series of gears and then stretching across two a-frame legs is essentially a spool that can sort of take up or let out a rope and the way that this thing worked is it didn't wasn't originally here in our space it was actually up on the top floor and there was one in each of the seven warehouse buildings Essentially, the way that it worked is that there was a train that was draped over this big wheel here. And if you pulled the chain, it sort of turned a series of gears that turned the spool that took up the rope that was basically an elevator that Mm -hmm. lifted pallets up through a trapdoor underneath to bring these very heavy goods, sometimes several tons at a time, up to the top floors. Otherwise, it would have been men carrying things up staircases. Wow. So- this kind of ingenious, simple machine was used well into the 20th century, even though it looks quite primitive. And this is the original here.
0: Wow. So this is not a replica. This
1: is not a replica. And I have to shout out props to our staff and some of the the folks that we work with. We completely disassembled this winch from where it was on the top floor of a different warehouse brought all the pieces down here to our space and reassembled it so that our visitors could have a true and visceral sense of the way a building like this worked.
0: Now the other thing that you see when you walk around this space um, are these beautiful posts. Now it's interesting I say beautiful because there is this kind of ways that these these really rudimentary structures become aesthetically valuable now, totally right?
1: no one in the no one in the 19th century when this sort of was built would have ever been like this is so beautiful this is, is so is. cool <laughs> they threw these buildings up yeah. like they were a nothing and they're very structurally secure right, right. but they're they're workplaces no it's
0: true and you know it's like walking around here i i remember the first time i walked in this space i was like oh, i would I would kill to live in a place,
3: <laughs> and of course,
0: like go back a hundred years, and nobody wants to live they where they work, right? Us. They're exactly. like, please, that's where we work. Nobody wants to live there. But, but in the on these posts, um, which have the these are the original posts, and of course, that speaks to the. Um, integrity of the structure itself but there there are all these markings tell tell us a little bit about what these markings mean.
1: Yeah one of my favorite things to do in this space is to just find some of the graffiti on these posts um, and put my hand on one of the posts and close my eyes and imagine this space filled with bags of sugar and coffee and grain and hogsheads, which are barrels. And then, of course, hundreds of men and you know dozens of draft animals working to move these things in and out. Again, just the bread and butter of American commerce has its roots in the building that we're standing right now. And so these posts, which we value today for their sort of beautiful lines and their sort of like evocative 19th century aesthetic, were kind of just blackboards Mm. for the workers that worked in empire stores so if we look closely we can see lots of different kinds of writing we see ink which is mostly 19th century and then chalk which is usually early 20th century and look at this here this is just addition and subtraction they're adding up the number of bags that would have been stored in this particular spot or in that particular spot um, by the 20th century, they're mostly storing coffee in the space. And so they, these bags, because coffee can actually stay, doesn't go bad for a really long time. It can sit in a cool warehouse for like 10 or 20 years. Wow. Um, these might have been here for many, many years while coffee traders across the river in Manhattan were basically trading their coffee back and forth as a commodity. These beans might have stayed here for years and years and years. So these tallies might just be keeping track of the number of bags that should, mm. be, that should be situated in this particular place. And
0: how did they keep it cool? How did they keep the, the building cool?
1: Again, like- the, the evidence of how they did this is all around us. So we talked a little bit about the schist walls before. Schist is a very thick and dense rock designed basically to keep out the heat and humidity that we, of course, know marks the impending summer that we feel in New York. And then these arch windows, um, they're beautiful. They're sort of a beautiful architectural detail that we admire today, but there are windows both on the front of the building And the back of the building. On the front of the building, they were used to load in and out sometimes, but when you open both the front and the back, it allowed for very um, sort of simple air circulation through. So we have to remember this is an age before refrigeration. This entire building was designed to be kept like a tomb.
0: One of the other things that, um, I mean, thinking about these markings again on these posts, measurements doesn't don't seem to be the only thing that's, that's on true. here, right? That's I mean, true. I mean, okay. it's what's we really interesting. I mean, I gotta and- say, you know, I I. I guess I'm impressed with the workers who used it for that purpose, like to to mark and count bags. Because I, well, I shouldn't put myself out there, but I would have been tagging the post yep. with like,
1: yeah, I leave wrote your my mark, name. I your historical that. mark. Yeah, I would have like, I would have <laughs> like scribbled
0: the name or two on there, you know. There's but, definitely so, yeah. names. There's definitely yeah.
1: initials. A few other places in the building, I found some kind of dirty words. <laughs> So, in a way, actually, the graffiti that we see throughout the building actually reflects the change of the building over time. So, um, in the 19th century, this was a general storage warehouse where the workers who worked here were carrying in bags of sugar and grain. Um, This was a place that was the center of what they called at the time the Calcutta trade. And so, we had sort of jute and linseed oil coming in from. uh, from India, there were animal skins coming from the Argentinian pampas. It was just a, a panoply of goods from all around the world. By the 20th century, the building shifts to being mostly a coffee storage space. The building, it's important to know, is never functioned as a factory. No roasting took place here. It simply stored things. And by the 20th century, it was owned by Arbuckle Coffee. And so it was storing basically green, which are unroasted coffee beans, before they were basically moved over a few blocks to be roasted in Arbuckle's warehouses that were sort of closer to John Street, a little bit further east of here. But Arbuckle sells the building in 1945. And it's basically at that point that the building is empty until now. Mm. So the building was empty for about and empty for and unused for about seventy years, wow. which is quite remarkable to think about, um, and very actually pretty rare in in New York. And during that time, the building didn't sit untouched, of course, right? Um, People came inside. There were squatters. Um, and then by the 1960s and 70s, um, the building actually gets part a landmark designation by the 1970s. And by that time, Dumbo itself is changing again, and it's becoming a sort of a haven for artists. So I think one of the fascinating things about the building is that it be- then becomes... A different kind of canvas Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. graffiti artists Mm -hmm. who did unbelievably beautiful work on the shutters um, in the building, some of which um, we're actually going to be featuring in the exhibition that we're opening here in the end of the year.
0: And if visitors came today, um, they would see how a new generation of artists were inspired by the waterfront and and this neighborhood uh, in an exhibition that we have ongoing until September entitled Shifting Perspectives. So we invite everyone to come, not only to see this exhibition, uh, see the, the amazing photographs hanging up here, but also look at the winch. Feel the post. See if you can channel like Julie does back to a century ago, the workers who measured their coffee beans and bags of of storage material um, and just kind of absorb this amazing history.
1: A couple years ago, I was searching the New York Times online and I came across this tiny little death notice in the New York Times for a man named Michael Harkins. From there, I got very excited and I emailed it to our guest, Katie Lasdow, who is a PhD candidate at Columbia University and assistant public historian here at Brooklyn Historical Society. Katie's been part of a curatorial team researching the history of Brooklyn Waterfront for an upcoming long-term exhibition. Katie, do you remember the day that I sent you Michael Harkins's death notice? I do.
2: You were so excited about (laughs) it and you told me to go forth and find our worker and so
1: (laughs) that is what I did. What does that mean in historian speak? What was so significant about this little, I was like 40, 50 word death notice? Yeah,
2: I mean it means so much. I mean from that you know, two sentences, I think it's two really long sentences, we were able to find out not only that there was a guy named Michael Harkins, but that he was 45 years old when he died, that it was in the year 1873. And this was the best part that, um, well, aside from the fact that he died, poor guy. But the best part was that we were able to figure out where he lived. And they took the, the people who found him when he was killed Um, at the Empire stores, took him to his home, which was 195 Plymouth Street, which is in the neighborhood of Vinegar Hill here in Brooklyn. So you have his name,
1: you've got his age, and you've got his address. Where do you go from there? So
2: I sort of feel like I'm a plug for, you know, all of those like wonderful TV shows about searching for your ancestry because I immediately went to ancestry.com. I found so much um, the coolest piece of information popped up almost immediately and that was the 1860 federal census for the United States, which lists a Michael Harkins um, exact age that we want him to be um, living in Vinegar Hill um, on Plymouth Street with a wife named Mary, a daughter named Mary and a son named William.
1: And so Vinegar Hill, that's really close to where he worked, right? Tell me a little about that neighborhood at the time.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So Vinegar Hill is um, a predominantly Irish neighborhood in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s when Michael Harkins and his family would have been living there. In fact, it gets the nickname Irish Town for the sheer number of Irish immigrants who are living uh, in that neighborhood. Um, It's named for the fact that there was a Battle of Vinegar Hill um, in the Irish Revolution of 1798 of all things. And these Irish immigrants who are coming to New York City and to Brooklyn in the 19th century take that heritage with them when they create this neighborhood. And they essentially set up what becomes a center of working class life and community in Brooklyn.
1: So how far did he live from work?
2: Not far at all, just around the corner. So his commute to work, if you can even call it that, would have been a quick walk down the down the road.
1: Now that sounds really attractive to me. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, doesn't a it? A quick
1: commute, but it probably wasn't so attractive in the nineteenth century.
2: No, not at all. Um, although he did live close to the waterfront, where Michael Harkins did most of his work. Um, Vinegar Hill was not a swanky place. It's not, um, we can't think of it like we would when we think about Dumbo and those surrounding streets today. Um, it was a working class neighborhood, which meant that you have a high proportion of tenement housing, which is um, essentially your earliest form of apartment building in New York and Brooklyn. And tenements for Irish families meant pretty subpar housing. You're going to be living among many families with not the best uh, amenities and, you know, forget about utilities, running water, bathrooms, things like that. Um, So home life was not was not cushy for Michael Harkins and his family.
1: Yeah, I mean, Dumbo was this incredibly industrial neighborhood. And yesterday we think of luxury waterfront living. But back then, it would have been kind of a noxious place to live, right?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, think about having to either, you know, walk out to the back courtyard to go to the bathroom in a privy or stepping out onto the street to find a publicly accessible water pump sometimes if you needed to get fresh water, um, and it's probably not the freshest.
1: Right, and if we look at maps of the time, there were coal um, stores near there, there were lead factories around there. I mean, this was a place of high industry by the end of the 19th century. Absolutely, and all
2: of that is kind of coming into contact with one another. You have the, the residential and the industrial right up close against one another.
1: Cool, so let's get back to our census. Tell me about what you found about his family.
2: Yeah. So Michael was married to a woman uh, named Mary Gallagher. And we know that they immigrate um, sometime around the 1850s. But what I couldn't figure out is whether they came together. So they either get married right before they come over to Brooklyn, or they get married shortly after arriving here. They have two kids, a daughter named Mary, um, which gets interesting when you're trying to search for two Mary Harkins. Mary Gallagher. That's uh, yeah, <laughs> pretty common Irish name. Yeah, yeah exactly. And a, a son named William. Um, and... Mary Harkins, the mom, uh, most likely uh, worked as a housekeeper. We have a few records um, where she's listed as keeping house and as a housekeeper. And we know that she made a little money because she was actually able to open her own savings account, um, which ties her uh, not only to her husband, because the record links her as a married woman, but also to the fact that she was economically self-sufficient in some ways. She was able to amass um, a pretty good amount of personal property in that order to so, open a bank account.
1: That is so Interesting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Okay, so first off was census, then where'd you go?
2: So from the census, I was able to sort of figure out this family. And then I moved into more records. So we find that that bank account for Mary Harkins, we find um, other records like city directories that help trace where they're living so that a city directory is essentially like your 19th century phone book before there's a phone. So it lists people where they live and what they do for work. And so I could trace Michael Harkins and their addresses over time. I also found other census records that show the family getting older and where they might be moving and the children growing up. And one of the interesting things is that William Harkins sort of like falls off the radar. We don't really know what happens to him. And so these were some of the questions that I kind of kept in the back of my head as I was researching. There's
1: such an irony to that because usually it's the women that fall off the historical record that are difficult to find. And in this case, we lost one of our our men in the family. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Strangely enough, Mary Gallagher-Harkins and the daughter Mary become two of the kind of mainstays of this family,
1: It's interesting. All these records are giving us all this demographic information about the family, but it's harder to get sort of the texture of the neighborhood. Where did you go to get a sense of what it was like to live in Vinegar Hill?
2: Yeah, newspapers are a good place to start. Um, I was sort of trying to figure out if, if any publications had said anything about what life was like in Vinegar Hill. And so I started typing in to the search engines just their addresses to see if anything would pop up. And oh my gosh, so much popped up. So you popped in our addresses. What came up? <sighs> my goodness, Julie. So living in Vinegar Hill was crazy. So the The Harkins family lived in two different tenements, one in the 1860s and one in the 1880s, I believe, in which two different um, murders occurred. Murders? Murders, yes. Um, In one instance, um, a woman by the name of Margaret Donaldson, and this is in 1867, she was um, unfortunately uh, murdered by her husband um, in front of their children. Yeah. And the same thing happened in the 1880s when Bridget Lindsay, who was a neighbor of the Harkins, she was also killed by her husband in front of their four children.
1: Oh, my gosh. So they lived in two different buildings where two murders took place. Yep. And we obviously don't necessarily have demographic information, but that has got to mean something about the level level of crime or danger in living in this neighborhood.
2: Yeah, so it's it's a little complicated. And I think first we should make sure that it's clear that, you know, newspaper reporting in the nineteenth century is not of the caliber that we would hold it to today. So Back in the 1800s, a lot of newspaper writers would sensationalize a lot of stories. And they often, not only would they sensationalize the news that they reported, they would often target certain groups in society. And one of those groups was Irish immigrants. Um, and this is at a particular moment in American history where there are a lot of prejudices and what we would call you know, nativist sentiments um, about immigrants, particularly the Irish, who are coming into cities in droves in this period. And so when we read about violent crime in Vinegar Hill in the 1800s we have to sort of contextualize it within this understanding that journalistic standards aren't as high and that this is a particular moment of certain types of prejudice that's all of that to say that living in tenements was was violent and dangerous and crime was was prevalent in people's lives. Um, but, you know, this is, these are folks who are living with very little. They're very poor. Um, like I said before, with tenement living, you know, you're crammed up against other families. Y- you have people struggling with alcoholism. You have people struggling with poverty. And for many of these people, it leads them to their breaking point. And unfortunately for these women and these families, they meet their end.
1: So, Katie, why why is it important for us to follow this treasure hunt and tell the story of the Harkins family?
2: I think one of the reasons it's important is we often think about Dumbo and Vinegar Hill and, and the neighborhoods in and around the Brooklyn waterfront as sort of these swanky, posh places to live. You know, today we go to Dumbo and we're surrounded by Fancy restaurants, fancy apartments, all these things. And you forget that underneath all of that shiny new um, patina of development are these legacies of folks who lived in this neighborhood before it was anything like that. And the Harkins family is one place where we can begin to
1: see that story. And it makes me think about the hundreds of thousands of other workers who might have lived and died along the waterfront. And in a lot of ways, Michael Harkins has come to represent them for us.
0: One of our favorite things about the Waterfront Exhibition is that it incorporates oral history in many different sections. On this episode, we'll listen to a collection of oral histories describing life along Brooklyn's waterfront in the 20th century. Three narrators, Francisco Prats, Pino Deserio, and Roberto Davenport, describe experiences of segregation, inclusion, and divestment in both workplaces and residential neighborhoods along Brooklyn's coastline. Julie gives context between each clip in order to weave them into one larger story.
1: This is Julie Golia, historian and curator of Waterfront. Brooklyn's coastline has long been a site of inequality. Workers have faced racial and ethnic discrimination in hiring practices and in pay rates. Federal and local housing policy has segregated poor Brooklynites and people of color in crowded neighborhoods with subpar city services. Lower-income neighborhoods have dealt with higher crime rates and higher rates of police brutality, and zoning decisions have created a highly segregated public school system. Yet Brooklynites have created community institutions to battle racial and economic inequality. They have also worked hard to dismantle systems of segregation on Brooklyn's shoreline and beyond. Let's listen to Francisco Prats describe the difficulties he faced securing a job as a newly arrived Puerto Rican in the 1920s. It's hard to get it because they don't want to give us Puerto Rican a job. They don't like the Puerto Rican those days. It was factories over here in J Street. In many places they had signs in the world, no Puerto
3: Ricans allowed, those days. And if you get in line over there to get a job, forget it. You was going to get beat up. Depends on you're a Puerto Rican those days. Mm. And when the cop come and they know there's a Puerto Rican, that's good enough. You are going in jail
1: those days. Pino Desario, an Italian immigrant who came to Brooklyn in 1970, recalls a legacy of segregation and integration at Todd's Shipyard, where he worked.
3: Todd's Shipyard, uh, predominantly in the 20s, all people from Ireland and mm-hmm. English people were it was like an elite job. You cannot get in unless you were that uh, wasp. But then it changed. Got it integrated in, uh, during the war. A couple of blacks, then literally some Italians, you know?
1: Deserio recalls that even in the 1970s, when he worked at the shipyard, Irish Brooklynites continued to hold the majority of management roles. Other Brooklynites recalled that public housing complexes near Brooklyn's shoreline were diverse and integrated in the years after World War II, and that segregation became a more significant problem in the 1960s and 1970s.
3: I had a wonderful time growing up with um, my brothers and sisters in Farragut.
1: Educator Roberta Davenport grew up in the Farragut Houses, a public housing complex near the Brooklyn Navy Yard. She describes the Farragut of her childhood as a community oriented and diverse place to live.
3: It was almost idyllic. Clean, very, very clean. You had the, the uh, city workers making sure the landscaping was done. The area was, uh, you know, free of, of trash and, and garbage. Uh, it was a mixed community, lots of different uh, ethnic groups were there. At some point, it changed and it became all African American and Latino, you know?
1: During the 1960s and 1970s, deindustrialization prompted many businesses to move out of the city, robbing Brooklynites of well-paying industrial jobs. Housing incentives, often available only to white Brooklynites, drew many white working-class families out of the city. As the city's coffers ran dry, New York cut city services and funding to its once-robust public housing program.
3: This uh, had an impact on the neighborhood, on services, right? Quality of life. Obviously more of a police presence, you know. And people were, were trying to get out, you know. Many, many, many stayed. I still know people who were still there, who were my peers. They stayed, right?
1: In the 21st century... As the neighborhood of Dumbo gentrified rapidly, residents of the Farragut houses became forgotten neighbors. In 2013, the median income in Farragut was about $20,000 a year, while only a few blocks away, the median income in Dumbo was over $200,000. Davenport reflects on the struggles that Farragut community members face today, and she honors Farragut's tight-knit intergenerational
3: community. They want what everyone wants, you know. They want dignity. They want to be visible. They want to be valued. They want to be protected. And they want opportunities. Quality food. There's no place to get good food. You have to go into Dumbo, you know. There's so much that could be done. The heart is there. The dignity is there. The loyalty is there. Again, you have families who've been there for many generations are still there. And uh, they want the best, the best of what life has to offer. And they want so much for their children. But those who are invisible and disenfranchised and disconnected from, especially resources, resources, job opportunities...
1: And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush Maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories.
0: Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephs.com.
1: Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts,
0: Zahir Ali
1: and Julie Golia.